That's the periodic table of elements. I, I can date my introduction to science by that. It's wonderful, really. It's, uh, it's, it's the universe at its essence. You see, you have your alkali metals, you, you have your halogens, your inert gases. Every element has its place in that order. You can't change that. They're secure, no matter what. You're not married? Me? No. I'm not very good with people. All right, um, I never have been, Leonard. I like them. I wish I could say I had more than a rudimentary understanding of them. Maybe if they were less unpredictable. Wait a minute. Dr. Sayer just described me. Although, Leonard, I am married. And welcome to the Cinema Psych Podcast, the podcast where psychology meets film. I am your host, Dr. Alex Swan, and today we are going to be talking about a really feel-good, but also kind of, this makes me sad kind of movies. Yeah, we're talking drama in this episode, and that drama is a really great performance from both Robert De Niro and Robin Williams. Yep, I am talking about the 1990 classic Awakenings. Awakenings. That's the film that we're going to be talking about on this episode. And I've got a great guest host to help me talk about this episode. But before we get into that, uh, if you're not familiar with the movie, and that's totally fine, too. Um, There's not a lot of spoilage that I could do to this movie. I mean, it's based on a true story, and we'll get into that true story in the episode. So, you know, stay tuned for that. But like I said, Robert De Niro, Robin Williams, equal billing. Um, This is, you know, one of Robin Williams' first, I think it's his first appearance as a doctor as a real doctor or at least a, a, a some uh, uh based on a doctor because then he goes on later in the that decade to play patch adams so you know this is uh this is the first first go around as dr robin williams and then robert de niro plays a wonderful I mean he did a lot of he's he does method acting basically I don't know how much method acting he does these days but in some of his truly groundbreaking performances like Travis Bickle and Taxi Driver and um you know his uh uh, uh Don Corleone in Godfather 2 and 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 in this one in Awakenings he really gets into the role that's how he he preps for them and uh, in this one, uh, it's very difficult to tell as an outsider, admittedly as an outsider. It's very difficult to tell that um, he does, does not 
suffer from tremors uh, and and other uh, catatonia issues that we'll talk about later in the episode. It, it's hard to tell that he doesn't have those issues. Um, but of course, he doesn't. He's 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 playing uh, somebody with these uh, neurological issues. Um, but I mean, you got to give it up to him. He he he, he does a really good job um, showing the arc of his character, somebody who is um, dealing with this uh, with this illness, with this neurological disorder that leaves him catatonic, um, awakening from that. Hence the name of the movie, and then. Um, you know the, the 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 saddest part of the movie is that you know it's 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 temporary it's a temporary situation uh but this is um the movie itself awakenings based on the novel of the same name and um that uh the writer of that novel is Oliver Sacks we'll talk more about Oliver Sacks here when um when my guest host jumps in uh, but yeah, so movie came out in 1990, directed by Penny Marshall. You know, she's one of the great directors. Uh, some of your 80s and 90s classics, I tell you what. Um, in addition to uh, De Niro and Williams, uh, Julie Kavner, voice of Marge Simpson, plays the love interest for um, Robin Williams' character. John Hurd's in it, his second film of 1990. Who would have thought about that? Um, and then a few other uh, uh, random people. Alice Drummond, great character actress. Uh, Anne Mira. Uh, George Martin. Like These are wonderful, wonderful character actors who came and did these uh, Awakenings roles. Um, so, yeah. I'm excited to talk about this movie because... Um, there's not just one thing to talk about it. Yeah, we're going to spend a lot of time with the neurological part of it, but there there are other things. And um, I'm going to try to make sure that we, we don't have like a six-hour episode here. So without further ado, let's just jump into it. My guest host today is Dr. Sarah Bagley. She is an associate professor of psychology at Lindenwood University in St. Charles, Missouri. Hey, that's just around the corner. Has been full-time teaching since receiving her PhD in 2012. Her area of expertise is behavioral neuroscience, perfect for this discussion, but teaches classes in research, statistics, learning, memory, and sensation and perception. Sarah, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me today. Uh, being on a podcast is quite new to me, so I'm really excited for us to have this conversation. I am excited too, and um, I'm so glad that um, you can do your first podcast with me. That's always fun because then now you'll be a pro at it when you go on to the bigger and better uh, podcasts. Uh, so like I uh, do with uh, all of my guest hosts when we get when we get started is uh, first, how was your spring? Oh, quite different and unusual. We were teaching in a high flex form. So I was not mm -hmm. only in the classroom with my students, but also live streaming and recording videos and students had lots of wonderful accommodating options, most of which chose to not be in the classroom with <laughs> me. So it Aww. was different. But um, I mean, luckily, in good health, and most of my students um, said they enjoyed what they were learning from my classes. So 
difference. Hopefully the fall will resume more into kind of normal classroom every days mm-hmm. and interactions. But thanks for asking. Yeah, I, I wanted to get a sense of um, how you ended the the semester since, it, you know, a lot of us are it, it is only early June as we're it recording is. this. And, and um, you know, a lot of people do listen to these as soon as they do come out. Uh, well, so I wanted to give a wanted to get a sense uh, from you about, you know, what a roller coaster of a year it was. It was quite a roller coaster. The first time I had ever taught online was two summers ago, an online introduction to psychology class. And oh, then that was not one of the classes I taught in this last very pivoted year. But currently this summer, I'm teaching it again. So I have used a lot of my online teaching knowledge from two years in the last year and transformed some things for my summer class. So we're about silver lining. Yeah, we're about three weeks into my six week class. So we're, we're doing good. (laughs) Nice. Excellent. Well, let's pivot to uh, film here. And so broadly speaking, uh, before we get into awakenings, I wanted you to I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on on films and movies as a general fan. And um, as a psychology instructor, um, what uh, what makes you use film in your teaching? I love using film, but I try not to overdo it. So in recent Mm -hmm. years, I tried to maybe assign one movie per semester in a class Mm -hmm. just to make sure that my students have the accessibility to watch the movie and connect deeply with those topics. And as we're going to talk about today with Awakenings, there's a lot you can connect with. So I try and be really choosy on the films, but I have taught an entire class on memory and the media. So, um, awesome. some, some class or in that class, we would go through about five films in a semester and really dive deep into those. So I love using it as a very different kind of tool. That's not just out of your textbook or right. interacting with the professor or interacting with other students. It just gives mm-hmm. a different, um, Hollywood way with hopefully amazingly portrayed characters who can um, give you a glimpse into the life from a different vantage point. Yeah. And would you say that um, it mirrors your uh, general uh, uh, like of, of film? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You just you're just a student of life and you like to go and, and do that those things and then share that with your students. Oh, for sure. Uh, and uh, I and, love that. And even better, my students inform me of movies or shows that I would enjoy just by the nature of what we're doing in the classroom. And that's when you know you've made it as a teacher when when you get through to the student and they come immediately back to you and say, hey, look, I just applied what you said and I saw it somewhere else. Absolutely. That is that is wonderful. So let's pivot to pivot again. I guess maybe we're doing 180 degrees now. Um, Let's pivot to um, awakenings. So. As a behavioral neuroscientist, I can um, imagine why you chose this film. But for the listeners, what um, what made you choose Awakenings for our discussion today? Well, actually, Awakenings is a movie that I remember from my childhood. So I remember being in my teenage years and watching this film. 
And I did not realize at the time that number one, I would ever even go into psychology as a field, or maybe it started my fascination with the brain. I think my fascination was much earlier than that period of time. (laughs) But I, I was very much aware of this movie. And I won't be the one to say that I was the first one to bring it in my classroom, because it was actually another instructor who said, this is a really great movie for a physiological psych the class I was teaching at that time. And I was like, wonderful. Not only could I connect (laughs) it from what I had experienced in my formative years, but it's just an endearing story with a wonderful cast. Robin Mm -hmm. Williams, Robert De Niro, they just knock it out of the park in just their portrayal. And I didn't realize until my graduate school years that this was based on a true story. I had always just thought it was a romanticized film of a a life that I hope I would never necessarily lead. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, having Dr. Oliver Sacks, this British neuroscientist who are neurologists. So in practice, he actually... Um, in some of his speakings talked about how he tried to do laboratory research and he was not cut out for it. So he went into the clinical field and he was able to have a breakthrough with these patients who were awakened from their persistent vegetative states with this drug identified during that time, the 1960s called L-DOPA. So this story is not only about the awakening of these patients that's heartwarming, gives you the warm feels. Some students yeah, tell it me does. It's, it's a little bit sad, too. I get that phrase yeah. sometimes a lot. Um, so, you know, warning. But it also awakens my students to the ideas of neuroscience in a historical context, ideas yep. about humanity. And some of the physiological underpinnings of what's going on inside our body with that biology. So I've been yeah. using this film for almost a decade. I guess we've been doing that about nine, nine years in my upper level classes of either physiological psychology or behavioral neuroscience. That is so awesome. I love that. That it first came from a suggestion from somebody else. And, and then you were like, wait, I used to watch that when I was a teenager. And then just and and as we'll discuss, like just the the wealth of information that you can share with students about, oh, this is what this is well, one thing and this is another thing that happened. And here's um, hey, look, they're talking about L-DOPA. Let's look at what ha- what's happening in the brain while this is going on. This is I, I am. Uh, saddened by the fact that um, I kept putting it off. This was my first viewing um, as I prepared for our chat today. Um, And I only watched it a few days ago. So it's fresh in my mind. um, And I kept putting it off. I knew it was out there. I knew it was about psychology. I knew it was about neuroscience and and clinical neuroscience. Um, But I kept putting it off because I was like, well, it's probably going to be sad. Oh, really? That, yeah. that would be what you were expecting? Yeah, but that was the first thing, and then, of course, it was. Um, so I knew it. I knew it. Um, and then the other thing that I was, was you know, every time, it, every time it popped up on my watch radar, I just wasn't in the mood for a, a drama. 
But it's not, it's not only a drama. You have these moments of hilariousness. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. And I didn't give it a a fair chance. Um, I will, I will say like synopsis writers really need to jazz up some of these movies because it doesn't feel like Mm -hmm. two hours. There are some parts that do drag. I will be honest, but it doesn't feel like a two hour movie. Like it, it gets you set up for it. And of course, Robin Williams pulls you in. Um, and he's he plays a fictionalized version of Oliver Zach Oliver Sacks. Um, but I gotta say, I was looking at me in like 20 years. <laughs> You turned British. I mean, I am. <laughs> That's one thing. <laughs> exactly. No, not Oliver Sacks, but Richard Sayer, uh, Robin Williams's character, and just his mannerisms and his just inability to have uh, good conversations. Even what I thought was hilarious, and you know, you've probably seen so many nuance in over the last nine or ten years of of using this movie, but. Um, just the fact that he can't even have a good conversation with a catatonic oh, patient. <laughs> it, I mean, he was me. I was looking at myself watching this movie. So he immediately sucked me in. Um, and, uh, you know, the parts of the movie that dealt with giving the L dopa to the patients, um, that was, uh, compelling, um, from both, a Ooh, that's unethical, but, Ooh, that's amazing uh so and we'll get into all of that we'll get into all of that but um sarah why don't you uh give our listeners a sort of historical background um into the movie and um who this Mm -hmm. oliver Sacks guy that we keep mentioning is okay so this movie highlights the experiences of dr oliver Sacks, who was like i mentioned earlier a neurologist who came over from Oxford into New York in the 1960s. And so Dr. Sachs is a fictional character based on, I'm sorry, um, Dr. Sayer was the fictional character based on Dr. Oliver Sachs. Um, Right. So the book that he published over this experience of all of the clinical patients while this mo- this movie really only focuses on Leonard he had numerous patients that he was working with throughout uh his time in this clinical ward so he published the book in 1973 and then the film came to fruition in 1990 and what this whole experience is chronicling is the epidemic of encephalitis lethargica. So Mm -hmm. that is going to be the inflammation Mm -hmm. of the brain. It was also known as the sleeping sickness from about 1917 through 1928. They are uncertain on the origin. So they don't know if it came from bacteria or a virus or what type of inflammation these people had, but it was a worldwide epidemic. Mm -hmm. It was Worldwide. Worldwide. It wow. started in Europe. And then um, this was obviously in the United States. So it impacted um, in mm-hmm. in one of the publishings of Dr. Oliver Sacks. So that it impacted about 5 million people and killed what they expected was an estimated 1.6 million people. So this was quite an epidemic or I mean, pandemic. I'm not sure 
how far in the world it went, but it was it was actually mm. hard to mm. know when people were experiencing the effects lingering from the sleeking sickness, um, what what it was, what was actually occurring in the brain. And then the story mm-hmm. from Oliver Sacks really develops from those patients who survived. Those patients who survived and a a subset of them had this other kind yes. of disorder, right? I, I, from my research, I think it's a majority. I mean, it, I, a majority. Okay. You know, we've learned so much in the last year with the COVID, um, COVID-19 epidemic. And what we have seen from that mm-hmm. is people could have the virus and have absolutely no symptoms. So it might have been possible. Yeah. And the technology is by far different in the last um, well, yeah. 100 years from when this epidemic years. had started. Um, so it's really yeah. hard to know how many people were affected, how many fully recovered, how many had those lasting impacts. Um, but what they did see in the chronicles of these people who um, had this inflammation in the brain, survived it, was a, uh, it, it's interesting because they call it sort of a Parkinson's type tremor and some Parkinson's dementia and a lot of rigidity. And to the point mm-hmm. that these patients would go through um, go to, sorry, um, sort of a vegetative state. So we can get more into that in just mm-hmm. a few moments. Yeah. So, so the, the character of Leonard, uh, is shown at the beginning of the movie playing with his friends, but then having difficulty writing his name in cursive. And that's, that's a through line through the entire film, uh, probably a dr- dramatized version of it, uh, of this character's, uh, desire to write his name in cursive. Um, and then it, 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 it fast forwards to 1969 where we meet, um robin williams dr sayer and um he's sort of the he's a sort of a caricature of of um oliver Sacks, but in like a, a in a um not a derogatory way kind of like a a fictionalized version of some of his I would say Dr. Oliver Sacks' quirks. um, If you have ever, I I would suggest Googling this at some point. Dr. Oliver Sacks is a funny, funny individual where he said that. Yeah, no, I know. He actually, Robin Williams did such a great job. Sometimes Oliver Sacks didn't know if he was portraying Robin Williams or himself because he did such a great job (laughs) figuring out his mannerisms and how he could interact Mm -hmm. with these patients or have, you know, and so I, I often wonder, because I have watched many of videos of Dr. Sachs, the late Dr. Sachs, um, and I, I do mm-hmm. wonder how much of that was actually dramatized versus maybe he had those moments. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Um, and um, they yeah. were both hairy. Uh, and um, the, the shocking thing about the, their two lives is that um, Sachs only died a few short months after Robin Williams, um, died by suicide. So, 
Yeah, uh, very interconnected individuals on two completely different paths that sort of intertwine at this one moment and then come back Mm -hmm. again and intertwine at the end. It's uh, sort of outside of the scope of the movie, but like very, uh, very mystical, very strange. Yeah. I had read somewhere, and I'm, my source memory is terrible, but that Robin Williams said this was actually one of his favorite characters to play or portray. Yeah, um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure who yeah. um, who did say that, but it's on the yeah. IMDb trivia because yeah. I read that last night um, as I was going through the trivia for this for this movie on IMDb. So yeah, he has said that um, it it was one of his favorite films of his. And um, I really would like to know where it ranks on Robert De Niro's list, to be honest, oh, because yeah. he's done a lot of method acting in his career and he's played a lot of interesting characters. Travis Bickle probably being the 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 biggest um, icon of his career, but he had to do a lot for this movie. He had to be he had to yeah. be uh, rigid and catatonic Um and then he had to play all variations in between just fully functioning. Like mm-hmm. every space in between that. Which was so good. I'm sure as an actor just just stretches your ability so much, but I can understand how it would not be easy right. to do. So I wonder that as well. Yeah, uh, it's very, very, very interesting um, to think about. And this is the kind of. Uh, kind of thing that I do think about when I watch, you know, non-disabled people do um, do this kind of work. And uh, you kind of think about, OK, how many how much time did they put in to doing this? Who did they study? Who did they talk to? That sort of thing. Um, it would be it would be very interesting to learn um, how Robert De Niro went through that. I don't know if he's ever said anything. If anybody can link link me to an uh, interview he's given on that. I would love to know. That would be great. I mean, just speaking about that, it reminds me of Claire Danes playing Temple Grandin mm-hmm. in her um, video because, I mean, she does things some quite spot on. So, I mean, props to those amazing actors and actresses who can step out of their comfort zone yeah. and try something different from... Perspective taking. I'm all about perspective. Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, okay, so they have this. They they had this disorder, um, this illness. Mm-hmm. Um, is actually actually encephalitis, and um, they've many of them were um, many of them were catatonic for many 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 years. Um, there's an older woman who uh, thinks that it's 1926. Leonard doesn't realize that he's an old man until he looks in the mirror. There's a there's a lot going on. But then another character has a wife and children, but they are grown. The wife moved on um, and he was sad about that. And and so there 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 was a lot of of different perspectives in that. But they all had this this illness and then they all had this, you know, this uh, idiopathic disorder, which was they couldn't figure out what it was a lot of um atypical dot 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 and uh, robin williams as dr sayer tells um eleanor the um the love interest of his story 
tells her, you know, you would think with all of these atypical cases that they would be there would be atypical. And I thought that was great because that's how averages work, right? So right, um, I thought that was a great line. And um, they so they all have this this disorder, which which causes them to be rigid, but operate in some um, rather remarkable ways. Uh, what are some of those ways that they operate before before the you know the the treatment? Treatment. Well, interestingly enough, it, I think uh, Dr. Sayer says, you know, capturing the motion of other things in the environment. Her name is Lucy Fishman. She was found by neighbors with her sister several days after her sister died. She has no other living relatives, and they say she has always been as she is now, with no response or comprehension. And yet, a reflex. If she batted it away, I might call it a reflex. But she didn't. As you can see, she caught it. Still a reflex, Doctor. I'm sorry, if you're right, I would agree with you. It's as if, having lost all will of her own in which to act, she borrows the will of the ball. The will of the ball? Excuse me. You're trying to make a good impression, right, Doctor? Trying to make a good impression. That's it, isn't it? You're still settling in. Miss Costello, will you see to it that Dr. Sayers' patients that are waiting outside are rescheduled for tomorrow? Yes, sir. Borrows the will of the ball. That's great. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Let us know if she catches anything else. So he uh, can set them to motion with um music Mm -hmm. or lucy who gets um stuck with a pattern Mm -hmm. on the floor so it's almost as if these brain systems are able to function at some level but it's more in um cortical processing rather than awareness Mm -hmm. Or uh, sorry, awareness rather than wakefulness. So I wanted to mention this. I talk about this in a few of my mm-hmm. classes. When we think about consciousness in general, it's sort of two different dimensions. How physiologically aware, or I'm sorry, awake are we with our bodies? Are we eyes open? Are we able to move our bodies? Are we able to to really be at that high level of mm-hmm. alert? And, you know, that ranges throughout right. a whole day from when you're sleepy and yawning in the morning to when you're at your peak performance. And it, it goes on the spectrum. And the other level is awareness. Mm-hmm. How aware are you of your environment? And it sounds like these patients are not having the connection between these two dimensions. Maybe there is the slight bit of awareness, such as the tile pattern Mm -hmm. on the floor, but they're not able to have them both operating on this high level of awareness and wakefulness. So it's interesting because they're categorized as vegetative vegetables, Mm -hmm. right? They're said they're in the garden where they are only going to water and feed these patients. It's a sad portrayal of some history of patients with mental health issues, Um, but vegetative states. So they, 
a true definition of vegetative state means that you have that physiological arousal in mm-hmm. the body, but disconnect that from anything awareness with the mm-hmm. environment. Now, that's different than being in a coma where there is no awareness, there is no no, no known mm-hmm. arousal. And then another kind of medical classification known as minimally conscious, mm-hmm. where you can connect your low levels of arousal and awareness. So it's interesting thinking about consciousness in these two sort of dimensions and where these patients, can they actually know what's going on or or not? And then what are they able to do with their bodies at this point in time? So it it sounds like you know, they, they were in like a dreamlike mm-hmm. state for all of these years. Right. But, and maybe they could shuffle on the floor, but not be connected to a deeper level of awareness of their environment. And it's, um, it's striking. There is a, a, a handful of scenes that sort of connect loosely to one another, sort of thematic, um, before, um, Sayer sort of has his breakthrough, um, which was uh, they were talking about what would he was talking with John Hurd's character, who I only assume is like the um, uh, chief medical officer or chief of medicine or something like that at this hospital. Um, he, he He's having a conversation with him and he, he says, you know. There's hopefully nothing going on in their minds because I mean how awful is that alternative? Um, and that I think really sticks with um, Sayers, uh, Sayers character or Robin Williams character, Sayer. Um, and he's trying to have this breakthrough with, you know, the motion therapy that they first started with um, trying to get them to do uh, sort of activities based on, you know, some sort of, of input. And he gives them a Ouija board. And he tries to have him spell his name, but but Leonard's moving the uh, whatever it's called to uh, different letters. And he um, he spells out Rilke and Panther. And at first, I when I saw it written out, I was like, OK, I see Panther. But what the turns out Rilke is, uh, is an author and um, wrote about a panther stuck in a cage. And uh, Robin Williams reads a quote of that while staring at a panther pacing back and forth. His gaze from staring through the bars has grown so weary that it can take in nothing more. For him, it is as though there were a thousand bars and behind the thousand bars, no world. As he paces in cramped circles over and over, his powerful strides are like a ritual dance around a center where a great will stands paralyzed. At times, the curtains of the eye lift without a sound, and a shape enters, slips through the tightened silence of the shoulders, reaches the heart, and dies. Very, he could get very close to that panther. I thought that was very strange. Not entirely sure where this panther was, if it only existed in his mind, but he was, seemed really close to a panther that was within touching distance. Um, but he's sort of, he sort of gets that. I, he's like, wait a minute, they're in there. And they've been yeah. in prison. They've been yeah. in mind prison. Could you, 
Could you even no, it sounds this was well, the this was the first time that was the first time that I was just like sort of took my breath away, like wow. It's one of those things that's so, uh, hard to to take perspective. I mean, think about this. This is the 1960s. Yeah. They don't have functional brain right. imaging. Fast forward to 2009, 2006, there is a group of researchers, Owen and Monty, they have a lot of published work now, where they are doing functional brain imaging with patients in vegetative states. And they would... No, have I you heard have about not. this at all? Oh, oh my God, it's fascinating. And I mean, Hollywood has taken this research and I just saw in the latest couple episodes of Grey's Anatomy. Yes, I do watch that. My wife does too. But I mean, in the most recent episodes, they're taking Owen and uh, Monty's work and they're portraying it in this Hollywood way. So think about this gap between the 1960s where you can't see activation in the brain based on, you know, just utilizing glucose at higher levels. What Owen and Monty and some other colleagues did was they took a couple of patients, they started with one, right, a clinical case, and had them functionally dissociate brain region activity of either play imagine someone was playing Mm -hmm. tennis versus imagine walking around the rooms of Mm -hmm. your house and these will activate two very different brain regions and they would ask the patient questions and if the question was yes you could do something like imagine they're playing tennis and if the question answer was no imagine walking Mm -hmm. around the room and I mean, the, it took a while to unpack the answers, but some of these patients who were classified as being in vegetative states where they were not aware of their surroundings could answer appropriately to those questions. Wow. So, I mean, while it may be a different disease, now we have a different way of connecting or trying to understand if there is some sort of awareness for a locked in mm-hmm. syndrome or or something of this vegetative something of this nature minimally mm-hmm. conscious yeah so I mean, I love this. I get to talk to my students about That's this. Awesome. Like we're we're going what sixty years into the future, and we're still trying to figure out how to communicate if there is that ability to communicate with these kind of yeah. Patients. Well, in a situation where they can't communicate directly with you, um, I could see that this yeah. could work too with you know uh, nonverbal um, autism spectrum uh, oh individuals yeah. yeah. That's re- that's really cool. I had, like I said, I had not not heard about um, this, and uh, I don't pay enough attention to when Grey's Anatomy is on to know that they. <laughs> I wouldn't take your your. I mean, they don't quote those studies or they anything really of that nature. Knowing about the they study, really should. I think uh, they yeah, can dramatize it. Knowing about the study, I was like, oh my goodness, they're talking about Owen. And I know you honestly research. have to know. This is oh. where you really get to test your research muscles on this because. Um, you gotta, you gotta flex when you know what they're talking about. Yeah. I think that's hilarious. And this is exactly why my husband will not watch that show with me because he'll be like, your basal ganglia, what? Like, can you just stop talking about the brain for a while? <laughs> okay. I love it. I love it. 
Okay, so um, I want to talk about the big El Dopa thing, but we're going to take a quick break yes. before we jump into all of the brain talk. So, you know, get, get, get a snack, get buckled in. We'll be right back with that discussion. Hey, listener. Thanks for sticking around this episode. I hope you're enjoying it. Anyway, I need your help in growing this podcast's audience. In past episodes, I've asked you to share this podcast with five of your friends. Let's keep doing that. Share this podcast on social media, especially if you really liked an episode. Share that episode. Tell five of your friends or family if they have an interest in film or psychology, or even better, both. Growing the audience is our goal for the second year of programming and so we need your help to get that done. Other ways to contribute to the podcast include tips to our PayPal, found on our website, becoming a patron at patreon.com slash cinemapsychpod, rocking some sweet merch from our Spreadshirt shop, and or leaving us a rating or review on your favorite podcast service. Now back to the show. Okay, so we are back with Dr. Sarah Bagley talking about the film Awakenings. Again, starring Robin Williams and Robert De Niro and some of their best performances that I've ever seen of them. And I've seen a lot of their performances. So um, what I want to do with this next uh, segment, Sarah, is I want to talk about this El Dobo, which is the main sort of driver of the story and the plot of the movie. And really has a lot for, you know, your phys- psychophys classes or your your behavioral neuro classes, you know. And that is um, this L-DOPA thing. Um, so if you could, uh, as the behavioral neuroscientists on the call here, uh, could you tell us what uh, L-DOPA is, what dopamine is, and what you mentioned earlier, the basal ganglia. What's that? Okay. So, um, for all of you naive scientists out there or neuroscientists out there, let's start with the brain, right? That's where it all starts. It's that lumpy connected, um, tissue inside your skull and your brain and your spinal cord are connected through, um, neural communication Mm -hmm. and sitting right. If you were to take your hand and hold a fist, Imagine your arm attached is your spinal cord, and then it comes just at the base of your neck would be your wrist, and then it bulges out. Now, this would be your hindbrain or brain stem, and if you put your other hand right over top of your fist, that's going to be your cortical area surrounding your brain stem. So now you all have kind of a visual representation or a tactile representation of what your brain is, Um, and all of your sensory information is bringing information in through your brain stem, or sorry, through your spinal cord up to your brain stem, usually out into the cortical areas. If you need some sort of movement to occur with your body, your cortical areas will tell your brainstem to send information down the spinal cord and then tell your body to move those muscles. Yeah. All right. This does, it does it kind of without fail. Our bodies are so well equipped to do this. 
The basal ganglia is a special region in the brainstem, so that kind of first fist I gave you, that helps us refine motor movements. And by refine, it's going to allow us to enhance our motor movements. So thinking about holding a bat to mm -hmm. hit a ball, you are going to be able to hold the bat steady and swing at the appropriate mm -hmm. time given information coming in. It also, so it initiates, it helps us initiate that movement to swing the bat at the right time, but it also helps us inhibit other motor movements so that we are specifically talking to only specific muscles to make that happen. And we're not swinging the bat all <laughs> over the place. Okay. So the basal ganglia does two different functions. It initiates and it inhibits. And one of the main neurochemicals that we utilize specifically in this area is dopamine. And dopamine will work depending on the pathway to initiate movements or inhibit movements. And this is, I'm just kind of talking about in the basal ganglia. Dopamine does a lot of things throughout the whole brain as well as throughout the whole body. Um, you, yeah, you can do a quick search and learn that it's one of the neurochemicals that allows addiction right. to happen and is very, very highly tolerant mm -hmm. and all this good stuff. So what we think was happening in these patients' brain with sleeping sickness is that there was a deficit in this dopamine where it's not allowing them to initiate motor mm -hmm. movements and you also see with some of the ticks and the tremors in the early signs of these patients that they're not able to control the muscle groups that they want mm -hmm. to control. And it's very, very similar to a Parkinson's type disease that has deficits in the basal ganglia with some dopaminergic functionality. So when Dr. Sayer or Dr. Sachs yeah. in real life, goes to this conference and learns about L-DOPA, mm -hmm. he thought, well, maybe this area of the brain, I don't know if they, they knew specifically this area or that it could be involved, um, if there's an agonist, meaning if there's a dopamine dysfunction where these neurons are either not producing mm -hmm. enough or not able to receive dopamine, L-DOPA can work to provide more dopamine into that system where then the system can maybe work more appropriately. Yeah. Right? So... In general, that's why, uh, that's what L-DOPA is. It's called an agonist of the dopamine mm -hmm. system. And it will allow someone who maybe had either this executing muscle function issue or controlling or inhibiting these other muscle functions, um, all, all controlled by the brain. So it allows the sort of resetting of those abilities. So you see them awaken and be able to control their movements again. Yeah, and I think um, I think what I'll add to that was a great that was a great description um, and a bunch of awesome. Uh, like I, I think I'm gonna steal the um, baseball bat <laughs> idea. Uh, that's a really good example. But um, I think I think it's also important <laughs> to note that L dopa is. All is not only a synth, which is what they call in the movie, is a, is a synthetic drug, um, but it's also a precursor to a lot of other um, 
neurotransmitters in your brain, not only dopamine, but other uh, what are called catecholamines, epinephrine, norepinephrine, or if for those of you who like to take the British idea and warp it into the media, uh, the American media, then adrenaline. You can have adrenaline and noradrenaline. Yeah, Um, because we need multiple names for everything. That just makes sense. Um, Just confuse people. Yeah. Great. But anyways, uh, I did want to mention that even though in the movie they characterize it as this this synthetic material that um, it is uh, made by our body um, from from um, amino acids. Right. You got to get that protein in your diet so you can make L-DOPA with then you can make dopamine. It's be great. Um, so the idea is that um, you flood the system with L-DOPA. Um, and then that will get metabolized into, uh, oh, I guess maybe not meta- metabolized is probably not the right word. Synthesized. Synthesized. Yeah, there we go. Uh, synthesized mm-hmm. into dopamine for use by uh, the other the other systems, like the bangle, basal ganglia, as you said. Um, mm-hmm. And so in the movie, um, and this, there are parallels to what happened in real life, and then there are not, then there are the fictionalized versions of this um so i have a rant but before i get into the rant um i want i want sarah to to uh because i i learned this t-i-l this stuff with dr saxon the actual things because i have not read the book awakenings um Mm -hmm. and so i did not know any of this so sarah what what actually happened and then we'll talk about the portrayal so my my research upon this is that they had originally received a 90-day trial to and with permission consent from mm-hmm. the families um, for a whole group of these patients to receive mm-hmm. L-DOPA. And it was double-blinded, meaning the doctors and the patients or caregivers who gave consent were not informed as to whether they were going to get L-DOPA or right. the placebo. So Dr. Sachs speaks about being able to infer with almost certainty each of the patients who received L-DOPA within a month or less. So this was supposed to go 90 days, three months-ish. At about a month or less, they completely stopped the trial and gave all patients L-DOPA. Um, without that 90 day mm-hmm. limit. So they also believed that was going to be unfair to stop, to stop seeing this progression at 90 days. Um, so, and I have a quote from Oliver Sacks in 1983. Thus, what was originally conceived as a 90 day experiment was transformed instead into a historical experience, which I think is an amazing way to yeah. perceive what you had just done with these right. patients. So he actually had a hard time getting his work published in traditional academic mm-hmm. journals and re- reported feeling bewilderment, frustration, anger, despair, because he wanted to disseminate the story. And how Dr. Saxon, if you've read any of his other works, man has mistook his wife for a hat or musicphilia or hallucinations, they really are stories. Right. 
and not peer-reviewed published articles with tables and charts. And no, he, he tells the story of these individuals. So he was finally able to get his work published with more essay yeah. form rather than um, scientific peer-reviewed. And that became his much preferred way to be a doctor treating patients rather than a scientist. Right. So I want to hear your rants about his non-scientific Well, um, I won't, I'm not going to rant about Dr. Sachs. What I am going to rant about is okay. the portrayal of it in the movie, which um, movie. not necessarily grinds my gears, um, but it's just like, oh, man. I hope people don't believe that this is what, you know, doctors were doing even in 1969 because they probably weren't. Um, but in any case, that is not what happens in the movie. Um, all of that history that Sarah just gave um, you listeners is not a, a, at all. Well, maybe there's a little bit, um, but nothing uh, of that nature happens in the movie. OK, so he goes. Uh, so Sayer, Robin Williams, goes to the conference and um, learns about L-Dopa. And um, he learns about uh, L-Dopa based on apparently one person's work. You don't really keep, you don't really see too much of any other kind of research. Um, th this guy played by Peter Stormer, which I thought was uh, an interesting choice for like two minutes of screen time. Um, he, he's not that collegial. He calls himself a chemist. You're the doctor. And I was like, whoa. You know, you're st you can still help him out. Like, don't have to be a jerk about it. Um, and then he takes this single idea with no white paper. I know that would not be at all cinematic to write up, you know, a, a precis on what L-Dopa could do. But he goes to the chief of medicine. He's like, hey, I found this drug idea. You've heard of L-Dopa, right? Because you're a physician. And uh, the guy's like, yeah, I have, but you don't have a lot of evidence. And he's like, yeah, OK, but, you know, it still might work. Chief of Medicine's like, well, what do you want to do? Give it give it to all of them? Yeah. No, uh, some of them. No, no. one of them. <laughs> I was like, OK, well, it's no longer an experiment anymore. Uh, you're gonna, you're, it's, it's a, a case, case study. study. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, fine. Case studies are valid or fine. Um, as long as you know, you document and do all your stuff. It's fine. Okay. Um, and then he's like, I know exactly who I'm going to give it to. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The one I think, the it's one gonna I think it's going to work on. Talk about confirmation bias. Which is exactly what a researcher Right, exactly. Do. <laughs> so, um, you know, fast forward to him giving it to Leonard and, we, we see their titration attempts. So titration is starting um, somebody at a low dose and bringing them up incrementally to much higher doses. Or you can also titrate downward, going from a high dose and bringing somebody down to a low dose. So it's just basically not giving somebody an entire uh, bunch of toxic chemicals all at once. But the movie doesn't really doesn't do a very good job of passing time. And so what ends up happening is you're like, all of this titration is happening over and over and over again. Sayers going to the pharmacy and looking at a pharmacist or chemist or somebody, you know, put, you know, 400 milligrams of L-Dopa into, in, into a drink. Doesn't seem to work with orange juice, but we don't know if the, it was the orange juice's fault or what. 
right? We don't know if it was the citric acid inside the orange juice that inactivated it or if it just was too low of a dose. It's confound there. But they switch it to milk. Great. Good job. You didn't really actually rule out the confound there. But okay, that's fine. <laughs> put it in milk. So they put it in milk and then you see them over and over again increase it and nothing's happening. So they're like, oh, nothing's happening. And what we know now, okay, again, as as you've mentioned, Sarah, um, you know, this is the 1960s. But, you know, drug therapy wasn't necessarily like, ah, duh, we don't know what we're doing. Um, no, they knew what yeah, was. They knew what they were doing. They, they knew how this would work. And and I would I would imagine that with a couple of decades of psychotic um medication work under their belts they would they would realize that it does take a little bit longer for psychoactive substances to start working in a brain and we know now you know uh, a physician will tell you here's your ssri hey it's not going to work right away it's probably going to take up to four weeks just give it a shot give it a chance right and so they're like it's not it's not, I'm tapping my watch here. It's not going fast enough. And so, you know, in the evening, when it seems like he was not supposed to do this, because the, the, the pharmacist was like, hey, bro, don't touch my stuff. Um, and he goes into the pharmacy, pulls out the L-Dopa, puts a freaking gram of L-Dopa into uh, some milk and gives it to Leonard. I dude was juiced up on L-Dopa. No wonder he got up. <laughs> no wonder. <laughs> He's wired. He is wired. I like and the the crazy thing about it was he that that completely was forgotten. It was ignored. He I never know. said anything like, "Hey, should we give these people this amount?" No, no. It's more like a gram. No. It's more like no. a gram. Gram per dose. Wait, how do you gram? Last time we did it was 500 milligrams. Just don't worry about it. It's just a gram. I'm don't just, worry about it. Just thinking that it could that we should double the dose. <laughs> <laughs> and it is completely ignored for the uh, it swept worked. under the rug. It worked. <laughs> but you're yeah. at a friggin' hospital, man. Come on. You are a yeah. doctor. I know, but the 1960s, and I wasn't alive during that time, so I can only speculate. It was a different time. <laughs> and, you know, we're going to say this was a lot of yeah, Hollywood. This, and this we can say it was unethical. And a, a lot of, you know, it's got to be the portrayal that, that they want for this story. And it, I'm not trying to justify it, but I am trying to justify <laughs> it. I mean, we we also, as a medical community, as a scientific community, experiences like this, we're supposed to be having conversations that he did not do this right. Like, this is unethical. They didn't have permission in this yeah. way. They should have gone back and gotten consent or, you know, have a governing body, like an institutional right. review board, which <laughs> exactly. are very, very prominent yeah. in universities and hospitals. So... Because of circumstances right. like this, where people bend right. the rules. No, you are exactly right. I just, I, um, yeah, it, it, it is instances like that. Fictionalized instances, bear in mind, though, because this, this doesn't reflect. What, what would have, what actually happened would not have been dramatic or cinematic in any way. 
But of course, you need to have this. Exactly. You need to have this um, air of like, I I have to do something. Something has to work um, for you to get that that glimmer of hope that you see in the second half of the movie um, with all of these. Yeah. And I I think piggybacking off of that in this character of Leonard, there is this Hollywood dramatization of a romantic relationship. And I could find no record of that actually being truth. So it's based on a true story, but that part was not true. Yeah. There are, (laughs) I guess uh, there are only a few stories that would, if you change them, it would be worse than what actually happened because they are that Mm -hmm. they are that, you know, larger than life. But most of these sort of medically um, sort of oriented, medically based uh, true life stories don't have the same um, the same dramatic quality to them. Yeah, I want to call it. Yeah, exactly. Some bang. (laughs) Woo. Boom. You know, uh, that that sort of thing. Um, Even though I will say that um, learning about the actual sex stuff today um reading your notes um you know they they do the what i would consider ethical thing even though they break the rules quote unquote by ending the um trial early uh, it was the ethical thing to do because they immediately could see what el dopa was doing and when you have an obligation to help you have to fulfill that obligation Yeah. And I think that's what Dr. Um, Oliver Sacks' comment was of being a clinician and treating his patients and Mm -hmm. the people rather than the disease or the disorder. And you kind of have to question it in today's day and age in regards to vaccine use for, you know, uh, that's non-FDA approved for emergency Mm -hmm. use only. Like there are instances when you have to weigh, and this is where uh, humanity and morality you try and really get the best ethical equation right. for that moment and you hopefully have a lot of experts being able to weigh that input and in this film the only expert is dr yeah. sayer and he just goes and gives him that gram and he wakes up happy yeah. as a clam. <laughs> now in reality if his basal ganglia in the whole dopaminergic system is coming online, he is going to have a lot of ticks. You could equate it to someone who is under the influence of cocaine or even some amphetamines. Like he's going to have some some nervous Mm -hmm. qualities just in the activation of that system. He's not going to just sit up and be like, oh, yeah, right. (laughs) I think it might have been um, a little shocking had he woken up that way in the movie, Um, because I think it it (laughs) makes the impact of the tolerance uh, to L-Dopa and the spasms and the ticks that develop. Yes. Um, yes. Now, one thing that I wanted to ask you uh, specifically with this system, and I don't know if this is true or not, which knowing this is true would would help me describe this later. But they they start, they conflate the, um, I guess, tolerance building um with Leonard getting upset and i'm curious mm-hmm. if they did that for dramatic effect 
or if there's something in the arousal of of him yes. um, leading to those those ticks. So if you look up uh, the L dopa mm-hmm. tolerance, I, it's it's actually quite common for patients to get agitated, mm-hmm. to start having some paranoias or delusions of grandeur, okay. which he was doing. Like he was he was getting upset because everybody needed to mm-hmm. listen to him, and he was the one in the room and trying to tell people what to do. I yes, there is a little dramatization. Mm-hmm. But it could also have been possible that that when his body was building the tolerance, meaning he's getting that same level of L-DOPA, so now his system is used to getting that right. level of dopamine, it's not activating in the sure. same way. Tolerance means you need either Excuse more me. of it or the body Excuse just can't me. handle can't it in it. that way. Right. So, um, so absolutely, it does fall in line with how someone could be building up that tolerance and the side effects from it. So, so the agitation is out. Absolutely. Yeah. It's quite possible. How are you today? I'm all right. How are you? Never better. What's the purpose of these gentlemen? These gentlemen protect me. I wish I didn't need them. Someone's trying to hurt you? Who? Who? <laughs> That's the thing, isn't it? Who? One never knows. Someone I least expect. I expect. Look at history. Leonard, every patient on this ward thinks there's a plot against him. Yeah, well, they're mistaken. They're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> You've gotten worse. The drug's not working. All these things you're experiencing are the side effects of that, and they're making you behave this way. I appreciate you coming to see me, but I have things to do. Linda, Leonard, please look at yourself. No, no look at yourself. I have sickness. Sickness took me out of the world, and I fought to come back. I fought for 30 years. 30 years. And I'm still fighting. But you, you have me. no excuse. What can you do with but me? You have no excuse. You're just a scared and lonely man with nothing. No life, nothing. You're the ones to sleep. Your medicine could be taken away. They can do that. You could wake up in the morning and it won't be there. And so would you say then um, that this has a lot of connections with the symptoms that you would see in schizophrenia because one of the hypotheses with schizophrenia is overactive dopamine, right? And so you have mm-hmm. more dopamine than you need and so you end up seeing yeah. agitation, paranoia, hallucinations, all the side effects that you just mentioned. So I'm that's an interesting connection. It is an interesting connection. So I used to actually work with patients with schizophrenia Mm -hmm. um, quite a while ago. I was a data coordinator in a psychiatric research lab. 
And they were looking at metabolic effects and not, not cognitive effects, even though we were measuring mm-hmm. those as well. And I just, every time, because I have students ask about schizophrenia all of the time, it is the most interesting and unable to pinpoint one exact reason yeah. or one exact kind, kind of combination. I mean, it's, it's such an inter- interesting disease that I would say possibly like that is a possible Mm -hmm. theory and i mean it's so it's still not known i mean clearly l-dopa might be a possible supplemental treatment in order to or not l-dopa and that is a treatment i'm back backtracking on what i just said but looking at the dopaminergic Mm -hmm. system it is most certainly plausible that a deficit there or even overactivation could lead to those um, types of positive mm-hmm. symptoms for patients with schizophrenia. But if you think back to this movie, these patients were identified as having atypical right, schizophrenia, yeah. or at least some of them, because they were exhibiting the negative right. symptoms. So the blank affect, the inability to move or rigidity right. of movement. So there is there is connections in multiple ways with schizophrenia to the patients um, with the encephalitis lethargica, but doesn't that that one is causing the other. There's also various inflammation um, questions when it comes to schizophrenia and the whole lot to unpack. They're almost like two mirror um disorders one you have too much dopamine and one you don't and of course mm-hmm. parkinson's being the the one that we know uh more about with respect to yes. dopamine and and the basal ganglia and use of l-dopa in that treatment uh, sure. it, uh in treatment of parkinson's is what i wanted to say so it it, it it's a bummer too because you know the end of the movie they all end up going back to where they started. So they were awakened. Um, yeah. And then they yes and no. go back to sleep. Yeah, but they had the experience. Yes. Maybe this is where I feel like an eternal optimist. Would you rather <laughs> have the experience or never have the experience? I don't know. I also, I uh, knowing knowing more about the history, while, while it's noted that that summer, these patients had the most vivid um, recollections of being awake and aware, they all gained tolerance and reverted at some point. Right. They would periodically administer L-DOPA and seeing some lasting success of very shortened awakenings. But mm-hmm. um, Leonard, who the story is based off of, he lived another 12 years. So he died in 1981 and he had small periods of awakenings. That's really, yeah, that's really awesome. Um, and, and, and probably because of the continued L-DOPA administration, I wonder if they had not, you know, had, if they had stopped treatment, um, based on side effects or something like that, that, that recording smaller windows of, of awakenings, uh, would not have been observed. Mm -hmm. Um, so it it is this, this whole L-DOPA thing, um, that really, runs the show yeah 
which is so cool because in my classes, especially uh, a class like behavioral neuroscience, we get into the level of understanding neurons, understanding yeah. neuron or brain chemistry, these different um, brain or neurotransmitters like dopamine, some drugs and how they work in the brain and all over the brain. And we talk about movement systems and we talk about sensation and perception and we talk about levels of consciousness. And I'm not giving a sad plug for my class. I'm just saying like <laughs> this wonderful movie ties so much together it does. in historical context and is able to, to just make you question almost your own humanity i mean i could have been exposed to a virus and right exactly go to sleep for 30 years exactly and you have convinced me because i am going to be using this um this film for the first time in this coming year i'm going to be teaching cognitive neuroscience and this oh, is the awesome. film this is the film um, that I've already chosen sort of yes. eight months, nine months in the future or however, six months in the future um, when we start in January. Yeah. So we're we're definitely going to talk about this one. So you've sold me awesome. on this one, of course. Uh, and I think everyone will be better off for it. And I'm really hoping that we can watch it in person. <laughs> Oh, yes. Everyone pause, you're watching pause it. halfway through and say, what do you think the rest of what else is going to happen? Yes, yes, because we have had um, we we have had a previous conversation, I mean, with another group of people. But you were on the podcast, actually, um, uh, on an episode that was released um, earlier this week. Um, you joined us for the um, Midwestern Psych Association's um annual meeting uh, at a round table for the podcast um uh, which was virtual because of covid um but you had talked about how you engage your students in this sort of like um discussion uh based practice where you stop the movie halfway yes. and ask them how it. it's going to go and i can't wait to do it because i will have a couple of films um you know in the fall too so i will be doing yeah. that as well and you know i was thinking about it in a virtual world and if we're not all watching it together you can also have them turn in like a one-page reflection paper or you know an idea of a reflection paper of where do you think it's going to go pause the movie at yeah. this exact time and yeah exactly tell me what you think is going to happen and then you guys can have conversations of that mm -hmm. and then what really happened when everybody comes together yeah so i'm i'm, I'm pretty sure with the the way things are going knock on wood that we will be back um Excellent. most people will be back uh, if not all people will be back um by the spring for sure i'm thinking fall too and i i hope the same as uh goes for you all um mm -hmm. where you're at fingers crossed It's time for the Your Thoughts segment of this episode. Yeah, it's back again after a little bit of a hiatus. So we're talking awakenings. And of course, I like asking other instructors who didn't get a chance to join me to talk about the film what they would talk about 
if they were to use or have used this film in the past in their teaching. Uh, so, fellow instructors, what did you have to say? Joshua Bluestein would uh, would talk about the book. He would talk about the book and spend a lot of a lot more time on Oliver Sacks himself. Rachel Blassiman, I hope I am pronouncing that correctly, used the film in a seminar class to discuss the nature of consciousness and reality monitoring. Uh, a little bit of what we discussed uh, in this episode as well. Sheila Kennison uh, refers to the neurobiological psych stuff when talking about drug tolerance, which is really, you know, a big part of why L-Dopa fails. Um, the, the case described in the book, in uh, you know, could have come, as she says, from the 1918 flu, which I think is an interesting connection. I don't know um, what overall the research says on that, but seems like an interesting connection. There is definitely a uh, correlation, a coincidence in timing there. Um, Schlomit Fleischer Grinberg, I, I'm, I hope I, I said that correctly, um, does use it in psychopharmacology, talking about L-DOPA, of course, and neurobiology, the encephalitis part of this disorder, the encephalitis lethargica. Jason Spiegelman, friend of the pod, jumped in and says uh, what I think is a really great uh, explanation for the phenomenon shown in the film. He calls it the Goldilocks phenomenon uh, of dopamine. Too much, you have psychotic symptoms. Too little, you have neuromotor symptoms. But just right, you have neither of those symptoms. And he also talks about the difficulty of treating other conditions without eliciting symptoms of the other, which is what Sarah and I uh, had discussed with uh, Leonard and irritability and things like that. Karina Malavanti also chimed in and said that um, ethics and caregiver family dynamics, right? The mother, we, we don't talk a lot about the mother in this in this podcast episode, but there is a lot to discuss with um, the relationship of Leonard to his mother. And Esther Chang rounds us out here with neurotransmitters, and that is L-DOPA, dopamine, and all the rest. If you want to participate in any of these Your Thought segments, just drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter and join in the conversation. Thanks for listening to this. Now back to the show. Before we, we we finish on the film, I do want to end on a slightly lighter note since we kind of ended uh, on a dour note that, uh, you know, the, the awakening didn't last. There were small glimpses of glimmers of it um, as time went on, but it didn't really last the way that you kind of would hope for in an ideal world, right? Uh, so, Sarah, what is your favorite scene or 
collection of scenes in the movie? Oh, that's such a great question. As I as I think back, I've seen this movie so many times I probably couldn't even count it at this point. Um, I mean, the last <laughs> scene is always delightful when they talk about the real awakening being the the caregivers of these individuals. But I would say what actually trumps mm-hmm. that is Lucy and the pattern on the floor and connecting how she is nice. moving. And that that light bulb moment when they have, you know, drawn in the black squares on the floor and they get her to that yeah, to that amazing. moment at the window where it wasn't necessarily the will of the black. Uh, I mean, there's some sensation perception in there. So like the black and white, that it's not that that's drawing yeah. her. It's the window and the awakening and the ability Mm -hmm. to see outside. And I just think that that is just a powerful moment to go, you know, or to think to yourself, treatment of people, we need nature, we need the ability to have that freedom to look out a window. So I don't know, I I just, I get goosebumps Mm -hmm. when I think about how how powerful that is in regards to the treatment of any sort of patients and uh, how routinely mm-hmm. the mentally well, mentally challenged individual have not had those kinds of access to outside space to even yeah. be able to look out the window they're usually just in in beds with medical machines and when it comes to cognitive states right. I can't be healthy for anybody, even if you were in a great, no. great mental state. It's not going to improve your well-being. So I just think that that is so important when you start thinking about clinical facilities or long-term care facilities. Uh, yeah. And I, I'm glad you asked that question because I had never I- actually voiced that out loud before right now. <laughs> Yes, that's what I love. This podcast, this is great. I love it. Um, My favorite scene, well, it's a collection of scenes. Uh, So Bradley Whitford plays uh, an early role, like has like, what, two lines or something like that, which I think is kind of amazing um, for uh, an actor of his ability. You know, you all got to stop somewhere. And he and uh, another guy play two other doctors at this hospital. And they seem sort of like real. They they are real jerks. That's what their characters are. Um, and but they're kind of weaselly, kind of um, anti, really anti science because they don't really care what um, Doctor Sayer ends up figuring out about these patients. They don't really care, and I don't even see them have any like um, uh, turnabout activity like the uh nurses do um and the other caregivers um like anthony um but it, it's a collection of scenes so the first uh the first the first scene is when the two doctors and the chief of medicine are with dr sayer and he's showing them what happens when you know you chuck a ball at these patients um and that they catch them and that it's the will of the they're capturing the will of the object um and the 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 two doctors are like, no, you're so stupid. This is such so dumb. And then they walk out, you know, mm-hmm. snickering to each other or whatever. 
Um, and then later on, uh, Sayer is doing some um, EEG recordings of Leonard. Uh, and he's he's trying to ask him questions and see what sort of brain activity uh, changes when he asks uh, general questions versus, you know, personal questions. Uh, and nothing seems to be changing on the the printout of the EEG. And then he so he takes the the sheet of paper to these two doctors and they're eating lunch. And he goes, he says to them, hey, look, this is the EEG of these people. Notice anything? And they're like, yeah, there's this is the same as it ever was. Uh, you know, no activity or barely any activity or whatever. And then he flips the page over and there's this like burst of activity on the EEG. And he's like, this is where I said his name. <laughs> Mic drop. And then he walks away. He leaves the EEG there and he walks away. <laughs> that was an amazing, an amazing moment yeah. of comeuppance for those guys. And uh, a boost of confidence for is a very anxious character mm -hmm. in Dr. Sayer. So that 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 is my favorite. I, I really enjoyed that. So it's like um, I'm glad we could I'm glad we could uh, we could explore oh, those yeah. two scenes. I, I feel like you're uh, you're a person who roots for the underdog. And so I think in your enjoyment of that scene, you were like, yes, he just stuck it to him. Yes. Yeah, of course. He, exactly. I, I, I love it. I love it. Well, I want to thank Dr. Sarah Bagley for joining me to discuss Awakenings. Uh, before we say goodbye, Sarah, is there anything that you have going on you'd like to, you know, talk about, plug? Um, and if there's any uh, place that you'd like to um, uh, share your work or well, about you? Well, I mean, I'm not really overzealous on social media, but I think you could probably find some of my publications on LinkedIn um, or even on my Lindenwood University faculty website. Um, but, okay, okay, I great. will link that. But I... I really appreciate you inviting me on your podcast. This has been a whole lot of fun on oh, a this very fun. endearing yeah. movie for me and something I get to share with my students. So I'm glad that I have won you over in this film as well yes. as any listeners out there as well. So thank you for having this platform. You bet. This was this was great, and this is why I like having this platform. Um, and so that is going to do it for this episode. Until the next one, thanks for listening.